you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. This time of the year we reflect upon the coming of Christ. This morning we considered uh, the historical account of it, the announcement beforehand by the angel Gabriel to Mary. Tonight we're going to be considering from Galatians chapter 4 some of the practical ramifications of the incarnation of Christ for us. And so this is Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 now. We'll speak briefly of the first three verses, but for the most part, we'll be in verses 4 through 7 this evening. And so Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also... While we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, in these opening three verses, we find Paul making an analogy here between the condition of a young heir in the ancient Greco-Roman world with the condition of the Israelites as they were under the law. He says, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And so in the ancient world, a young boy who was to inherit the family estate would be placed by his father under the care of a guardian or a manager until he grew up, until he came of age. And these guardians or managers would be in charge of essentially everything about the boy, and functionally he was no different than a servant. One writer expressed it that he was obliged to rise and to go to bed, to work or rest, to study or amuse himself according to the will of others. Like the servant, he was altogether a person under authority. And that was his condition, even though he was the owner, or even more literally, was the Lord of everything. In our terms, we would say this child was micromanaged. Uh, in the same way that those of us who are parents might micromanage toddler. That's not a particularly pleasant state of experience when you are the one being micromanaged, right? Many of you might remember being young or being under authority, planning what you would like to do when you grew up, when you came of age. You wanted to be able to drive or you wanted to be able to, to work a certain job or study specific things because you like them and avoid studying certain other things because you don't like them. You want to drop the English and the history so you can study the math, or maybe, maybe vice versa, or maybe you wanted to drop everything so you could go study computer science, whatever it might be. You want to set your own schedule, get up, go to bed on your own timetable. Some of you might remember those days when you're longing for that experience of freedom, and you think, wow, when I just get old enough to function independently like that, that will be great. And so you, we, under, we understand these things, that, that this status of being micromanaged and being under this kind of authority is not, it's not great. 
Verse 3, Paul says that it was like that for the nation of Israel under the law. He says, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And I think that phrase, the elemental things of the world, is just another way of referring to the Mosaic law. Perhaps uh, specifically referring to the, the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. In other words, just like these children in the ancient world were subject to guardians and managers, although they were heirs, the people of Israel were held in bondage under the law before the coming of Christ. They were treated as, as minors who had not yet grown up. The demands of the law upon them were very great, and this state of affairs was not ideal, but it was not going to last forever. And Paul says in verse 2 that this state of affairs would last only until the date set by the Father. In other words, when that date comes, when the child comes of age, micromanaging ceases, everything changes. And so in verses 4 through 7, we see that in fact for the people of God, a great change did come. And verse 4 tells us the when and the how of this change. When the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Just as those fathers in the Greco-Roman world had dates that they set for the bringing of their sons into liberty and the full possession of their estate, so also God the Father had an appointed time at which he would liberate his people from the bondage of the Mosaic ceremonies under which they labored. And at the appointed time, God the Father sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, notice here that this was no afterthought. This was the eternal plan of God being worked out. He had been preparing his people for this great day ever since a very terrible day, that terrible day when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and the promise had been given that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And these promises, that promise and the others of the Old Testament times were pointing the way forward and preparing the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah who would break the curse of the law for his people. The promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the, the descendants of all nations would be blessed. The promise was given to Moses that the Lord would raise up a prophet like him for the people. We know and considered this morning the, uh, the prophecy to David in uh, that the Lord would, would raise up one of, of his descendants, that he would have an enduring kingdom, an enduring house, and the, the later prophets spoke even more vividly about the coming of Christ and what he would do. And just think of Isaiah and the servant songs and their description of this one upon whom would be the Spirit of the Lord. He would be gentle so as not to break a bruised reed, not extinguishing the, the dimly burning wick. This would be the servant who would be a light to the Gentiles. And at the same time, this would be a servant who would suffer greatly so as to reconcile people to God. He would bear their griefs and sorrows, that he would be smitten and afflicted by God. He would be pierced through for transgressions and crushed for iniquities. The chastening for our well-being would fall upon him. You see, through all of this, the the picture of this promised seed of the woman was, was getting clearer. The promise had been given, Genesis 3, but... Throughout the Old Testament time, the the picture of who Christ was and what he was to do was becoming clearer all the time. God was preparing his people for the date which he had set by his own authority. God was preparing his people for the coming of Christ. And not only through prophecy, but also through the Mosaic law and the ceremonies, God was preparing his people. 
There were sacrifices for sin, offerings for atonement. There was a high priest who represented the people to God and who offered the sacrifice on the annual day of atonement. Then there were the shadows of the heavenly sanctuary. Shadows of the heavenly sanctuary shown in the earthly tabernacle. There was the mercy seat and so on. These things were meant to teach the people about their need for atonement because of their sin and their inability to keep the law, their need for a savior. The fullness of time was coming. And even outside the nation of Israel, looking back, we can see how God was providentially preparing the world as a whole for the coming of Christ and for the spread of the gospel. If you think about the first century, Rome had a political monopoly on the Mediterranean world. The first century was right in the middle of a a period that is sometimes called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, a relative period of peace and stability in the Roman Empire. And there was infrastructure, roads and bridges, sea travel was available. The Greek language was common throughout the Mediterranean world. And so when you have these conditions, the gospel can spread relatively quickly. When you have a common language and a common government, infrastructure infrastructure that facilitates travel and so on, this facilitates the spread of the gospel. And it was thus that in the fullness of time, the time set by the Father, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. This is the great doctrine of the Incarnation. Cyril of Alexandria in the ancient church put it, Since for us and for our salvation, he personally united to himself a human body and came forth of a woman, he is in this way said to be born after the flesh. This expression, the word was made flesh, can mean nothing else but that he partook of flesh and blood like to us. He made our body his own and came forth from a woman, not casting off his existence as God or his generation of God the Father, but even in taking to himself flesh, remaining what he was. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, promised seed of the woman, born of a woman, born of Mary. He is the eternal Son of God, sent forth by God, and now, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he is man, true God and true man in one person. As such, he has all the necessary attributes of God and all the necessary attributes that constitute him as a true man. And this means that Jesus was was truly human. And yet he was preserved from all sin. He himself never sinned. He is the one who's been tempted in all things as we are and yet was without sin, as we find in Hebrews 4.15. And not only did he never commit an act of sin, his conception in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, was such that it preserved Christ from the taint of original sin. There's no sin in Christ. And you'll notice that Paul tells us here that our Lord Jesus Christ was born under the law. When he was born, the Mosaic law was still in effect. It was binding upon all the nation of Israel, including Christ himself since he was a man and was a member of the nation of Israel. This means that it was necessary for Christ to obey and to fulfill the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. The Gospel of Luke tells us that. He kept the ceremonial laws and the civil laws of Moses. He was born under the law and in that sense was required to obey it. And he kept it perfectly. He kept the moral law perfectly with love for God and with love for his fellow man at all times, such that he could say to the Jews in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? He was that bold. 
and that righteous, that he could say, which one of you convicts me of sin? He was born of a woman, born under the law, and kept the law, and fulfilled the law. As Joseph Hall expressed it, though he were exempted from the ordinary conditions of our birth, yet he would not deliver himself from those ordinary rights that implied weakness and blemishes of humanity. He would fulfill one law to abrogate it, another to satisfy it. He that was above the law would come under the law to free us from the law. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He was sent forth by the Father, born of a woman, born under the law for what purpose? So that he might redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so who are these, these people then of whom Paul speaks? These people who are under the law. Well, certainly the Jews were under the law in the fullest sense because they were under the Mosaic law, the whole totality of the law of Moses, the ceremonies, the sacrifice, the feasts, everything required in the Mosaic law was obligatory upon them. To use the imagery of verse 3, they were under the bondage of the law. God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law, to bring them out from underneath of that bondage. The ceremonies pointed ahead to Christ and therefore have been fulfilled by him. And there's no need now to continue foreshadowing the reality that has already come. The Jews were delivered from the, the ceremonial aspects of the law, and Jew and Gentile alike were under the law in the sense that we were under its curse. The law says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Jew and Gentile alike are under the moral law of God and always have been at all times. And therefore we were cursed by the law because we had not abided by all things written in the law. The law could not justify us as sinners, and we being sinners could not justify ourselves. And therefore God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he did it by sending his son to redeem us so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And this happened by Christ being born of a woman, born under the law. Christ kept the law, and this fact that Jesus fulfilled the law is of great importance for us because it means that Jesus earned a righteousness that he could give to us. This is what the theologians refer to as the active obedience of Christ, the, the fact that Christ came and fulfilled the law in our place so that he can credit his righteousness to us. He continually kept the law that we've continually violated and broken. And not only that, Jesus satisfied the penalties of the law, the penalties that those who have broken the law deserve to have inflicted upon them. Jesus suffered the punishment that we deserved by dying on the cross. This is what is sometimes referred to as the passive obedience of Christ, that Jesus subjected himself to the penalties that are due to us. And therefore, by his active obedience to the law and his passive obedience to the law, Jesus is able both to take our sins away and to credit us with righteousness so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And thus being brought into the family of God, we are counted as his sons. Now certainly all men and all women, in as much as they are, are creatures, can be described in some sense as God's offspring. Right? You think of Paul speaking with the philosophers in Athens, Acts 17. He says to them, as one of your own poets has said, we are his offspring. But even though we are all in that sense the offspring of God in as much as we're creatures of his and made in his image, nevertheless we're not by creation part of God's family. 
Because of our sin, because of the sin of the human race, we are born at enmity with God and alienated from him. Spiritually speaking, we're sons of the devil, part of the devil's family at birth. But God sent his son so that we might receive this grace of adoption. This is why John tells us in John 1 that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Jesus likewise says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. And so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so we are brought into freedom. And we're brought into the favor of God. We're reckoned as brothers of Christ, reckoned as joint heirs with Christ. Christ's reward is our reward because Christ's righteousness is our righteousness now through faith. And we read here in verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God's Son, and the Spirit testifies of our adoption, crying out, Abba, Father. And we see here all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in verse 6. God the Father, who has already sent his only begotten Son into the world, also sends the Spirit, who is here called the Spirit of the Son. All three persons, co-eternal, co-equal, perform different roles in the accomplishment of our salvation. God the Father worked out this great plan to save us. He chose us as his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. He himself set the, set the date for which he would send the Son into the world the Son accomplishes our redemption by His incarnation, by His sinless life, His atoning death, and His glorious resurrection. He fulfills all righteousness for us, and then the Spirit applies this redemption to us. He opens our hearts so as to believe the gospel, changes it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. He gives us new life. The Spirit is the one who likewise seals us. He's the one who marks us out as a distinct possession of God. The Spirit imprints those virtues of faith, hope, and love on our hearts. The Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, conforming us to the image of Christ. As we read in this verse, the Spirit is the one who cries out within us that we are the children of God, which is to say he gives us assurance of our salvation. And the end result of this great work of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, on our behalf, is what we read in verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The time is past when the people of God were held in bondage under the micromanagement of the Mosaic law with the moral, civil, and ceremonial obligations. We're not slave any longer. Instead, we are sons. The time set by the Father has been accomplished. God has sent his Son and this means that we are heirs. We are heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ. God is the source of this great blessing, this blessing that we are heirs according to the promise, that we are heirs of righteousness through faith according to the promise given to Abraham. And so what, what does this mean? We've spent some time kind of walking through these verses. I want to mention three points of practical application for us. Number one, don't regress. Number two, be thankful. Number three, live like a son in the kingdom of God. Don't regress, be thankful. 
live like a son in the kingdom of God. First of all, and most briefly, don't regress. In other words, now that the fullness of time has come, now that God has sent his son to bring us out of bondage under the elemental things of the world, don't turn back to the elemental things of the world. If we turn back and place ourselves under the ceremonies of the law, we're acting like a young person who never grew up. We're acting like Peter Pan, often never Neverland, right? Because Peter Pan, <laughs> Peter Pan never grew up. And that's, that's what we do. If we, if we return to the, uh, to the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law, we're, we're placing ourselves in a position of, of childishness, of childhood again, when the date set by the Father has already been accomplished. So we don't want to do that, and that's, that's what the book of Galatians is about, about not returning to the Mosaic ceremony of the law. This was only ever a temporary arrangement, and now that it has become obsolete, there is no point in turning back to it. It would be childish and foolish to do so. Again, the book of Galatians and a large portion of the book of Hebrews is about this very thing. And secondly, be thankful. As we look at the words of verses 4 and 5, think about God sending his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. As we read those words, let them fill your heart with joy and your life with gratitude. God sent his son into the world to deliver helpless and hopeless people, people like you and me. Christ did this by humbling himself to become a man, taking on real flesh and blood, and living in a world that hated him. As we read in the Gospel of John, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, acquainted with rejection, acquainted with pain, acquainted with betrayal. And he came willingly for that, for for us willing to endure all of that. And more than that, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and he did that freely. No one took his life from him. He didn't get caught up in circumstances and events that were beyond his control. Rather, he laid down his life on his own initiative. He had the authority to lay it down. He had the authority to take it up again, and that's what he did. He laid it down, and he took it up again, and he did it for you. Fellow Christian, he did it for you. Not only for others, for you as well. He did this so that you might receive the adoption as a son of God, so that you might be brought into the family of God, to become his children. As we read earlier in Psalm 103, that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God treats us as a good father treats his children. And God does this because he himself is a good father, because he himself is the best of all fathers. And it's interesting here that Paul uses the, the language of adoption to describe our relationship to God. In the ancient Roman culture, it was possible for a natural-born heir to be disinherited, to be cut off, and it happened. On the other hand, an adopted heir could never be disinherited. Once an heir was adopted... It was a done deal. There was no getting rid of him. This only goes to underscore the the permanence of our relationship 
to God. Once we have been adopted into the family of God, that is for keeps. And this calls for, for great gratitude on our part. And John expressed it well when he said, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. There's no way that we can truly repay the Lord for this kind of love. And so let's be thankful, and let's express that gratitude clearly by how we live. And that's our third point of application for tonight, namely, live like a son in the kingdom of God, because that is the reality for you if you are a believer in Christ. A life of gratitude will be the life of a son. And there are several aspects that go into this, uh, this idea of living like sons in the kingdom of God. For one, it means recognizing that we are sons. If you are a believer in Christ, then listen to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. This might sound rather simple or it might sound like a no-brainer, but Paul is very intentional to tell the Galatians here that they are sons. Maybe they needed a reminder that they were, in fact, sons of God. And oftentimes we do too. And so, fellow believer, recognize tonight that you are, in fact, no longer a slave but a son. That you're accepted into the family, fully accepted into the family, regardless of who you are, regardless of what baggage may have been back in your past, what sins you may have committed, what sins may have been committed against you. It's all gone. You're brought into the family of God, and there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And so, what we want to do then is rejoice in this, and rejoice that God has made us sons and heirs through Christ, that God has done everything that is necessary to bring this gracious adoption to us. So we want to, to recognize this blessed fact. Secondly, living like a son in the kingdom of God means that we, that we seek to live godly lives. And so Paul lays this out in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, where he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so Paul ties our imitation of God into this fact that we are his beloved children. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Those of us who are parents hope that our children will imitate us. But that desire is limited, right? We don't want our children to imitate everything that we do because we know that there are some things that we do that are not good. And so there are some things that we want our children to imitate, some things that we don't want our children to imitate about us. I once uh, saw, this, uh, saw this video where a man was giving some, some practical advice, uh, some dealing with kind of homesteading, farming stuff, and some, uh, some dealing with some other things. And he, uh, he spoke to, to men. He said, if you've got little boys, they want to be you. Make sure that's a good thing. And that's, that's, that's good advice. And so we, we understand, though, that, that we, have, we have limits as parents. We want our children to, to imitate some things about us, but we recognize that well, there's some things that probably are not so good. But understand that it is not this way with God. It's not this way because there is nothing in God that is unworthy of our imitation. Obviously, we recognize the distinction that exists between God and us, that he's the creator and we're the creatures, we don't require others to obey us in the way that God requires us to obey him or, or anything of that nature. 
But nevertheless, we understand that we are called to imitate him. This means that we grow in our hatred for sin, that we grow in our love for righteousness. We have to recognize that not only is sin evil and wicked and the source of death, but this is conduct unbecoming for those who have received the adoption as sons. When we choose to sin, we are for the time being refusing to live as God's adopted son, and instead we're living like sons of the devil instead. We're giving Christ a bad name, we're denying who we really are. So may God deliver us from that. And so we need to, to recognize that these two aspects of our sonship are closely related. The more we imitate God, the more we will be able to recognize our adoption. And the more we recognize and understand and are assured of our adoption, the greater will be our desire to imitate God. There's a connection between, between diligence and assurance. And so Peter says, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. The more we imitate God, the more we will be assured of the fact that we are, in fact, the sons of God. And we'll be able to see uh, what one man referred to as the practical syllogism of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And the syllogism goes like this. He that believes and repents is, God chi- is God's child. Thus says the gospel. But I believe in Christ and repent. At least I subject my will to the commandment which bids me repent and believe. I detest my unbelief and all my sins and desire the Lord to increase my faith. And so we seek to, to walk with God and by God's grace and the strength of the Holy Spirit, we make strides in our growth in grace and therefore we can draw the conclusion that we are in fact the children of God. And the flip side is also true. When we are confident that we are the sons of God through faith, we'll be more free and more able to serve God by walking in good works. We'll be able to do good works in confidence, knowing that our relationship with God is secure, that He is our Father and that we are His children through faith, and therefore, as His beloved children, we seek to walk with Him and to imitate Him. Praise God for the fact that the fullness of time has come, that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And surely we can say with John, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And this is what we are. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gracious gift that you've given to us, that in sending your Son into the world, we too have become your sons by adoption that you have brought us into your family, that you've given to us an inheritance. You've sealed us with your Holy Spirit, and he testifies that indeed you are our Father. So Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us, help us to give ourselves completely to you, help us to walk in good works, help us to walk in love, knowing full well all that you have done for us and accomplished for us in Christ. We pray that you would encourage us, pray that you would strengthen us, We ask your grace and your help. In Jesus' name, amen.